Welcome to Matters of Life. I'm John Lucier, your host for this episode. And I want to begin by saying Merry Christmas to each and every one of you. You know, this holiday is vitally important. It's the opportunity that we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our King. So I'd like to welcome you. Welcome everybody to the show, especially you who stand for righteousness and for justice. But I'd like to thank all the listeners for joining us. And we are going to discuss in this episode what's often referred to as the Christmas story. And we're because we need to have a right perspective of exactly who our Lord and Savior is. You know, oftentimes around this this holiday, there is the tendency to focus or portray Jesus just as this little infant. And yes, while he did come to earth as an infant, he that's not all he was. His birth talked about his future, his purpose and his plan for while he was here who he is, and was, and is. And that ultimately, of course, leads us to the cross. But even in that, we have a tendency to have a wrong perspective, especially if we let movies and, and TV formulate our opinions about our Lord and Savior. Because how is he often portrayed going to the cross? as this weak, frail, fragile, even skinny, emaciated individual. But that's not who our Lord and Savior is. Our Lord and Savior is a warrior. He is a deliverer. He was always that. He was that when he arrived. So we're going to cover that today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole story. I'll let you do that on your own. And, and for many of you, I'm sure you have a, a tradition that's probably similar to what we do at our house. And that's, that is to read, again, what's often referred to as the Christmas story. Discussing the birth of our Lord and Savior from Luke chapter 2. But there's some things I want to point out that I feel led to to draw out, to give us a right perspective of who he is. So in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields to keep a watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then he says this key verse, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And then, of course, the shepherds went and searched it out to verify it was true. And what were they verifying you, you may ask or say? Well, it's the word of the Lord spoken through Isaiah, back in chapter 7. So, as you're turning there, there's something that we have to recognize with what we just read. And that is the word Savior. It comes from, uh, in the Greek, soter, which is... uh, dealing with soteriology or the doctrine of salvation from the same root as 
sozo, which is to save. The word designates a deliverer, a preserver, a savior, a benefactor, a rescuer. And it's used to describe both God the Father and Jesus the Son. Now, this is vitally important. I, if, I don't care what you study out in, in history. I, do, I know of no deliverers that were frail and skinny. I know of no deliverers that, were, that remained a child. Deliverers are warriors. They have to be in order to provide deliverance. There is much they have to fight through. Physically, mentally, and most important, spiritually, in order to get the victory. I don't know of any infants that are out there wielding swords and battle axes and armor to bring about that victory. And if an individual is too frail and weak, how can he even lift up the sword or the battle axe, whatever weapon it is, or even the shield with which to defend themselves? Never mind, there is an aspect of aggression that must take place in order to bring about the rescue of someone else who is unable to deliver themselves. So in Isaiah chapter 7, and this is what the angels were, were talking about. Isaiah the prophet is speaking of Jesus while talking to, this, to Ahaz. And he's asking for talking about asking the Lord for a sign. And he says in, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So that is the first part, and that is, that is exactly what the angels are saying. The angels are bringing the word of the Lord, or repeating the word of the Lord, from Isaiah. This is the sign. That's, that's important. The deliverer had come. The sign that Israel had received a deliverer was the birth of this child, Jesus the Christ. That was the sign. You know, and even throughout Christ's ministry and his time, his earthly ministry, many were looking for the deliverer, for a king, for how many of us have looked for something but viewed it in the wrong perspective. So let's us today understand and correct that perspective. The deliverer had come. He came and the sign of his coming was the birth of this child. But he doesn't end there, Isaiah doesn't. In chapter 9, he says this concerning him. And this is verses, I'll say, 2 through 7. It says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it 
and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So there's a few things we have to look at in that. Isaiah, just in chapter 9, speaking of Jesus, Emmanuel, meaning God with us, is first talking in chapter 9 about him. And he is not talking about being an infant. He is talking about him bringing a light, him being a warrior. He's talking about battles and him breaking yokes and bondage and burdens. Long before he gets to talking about the child being born. I I hear it. I hear the revelation already beginning to happen. And in that revelation, which is wonderful, which is wonderful, do not lose sight of that. See who our Lord and Savior is, is and was and is. Very few receive this revelation. But let's go back to, and in the revelation, he, he was this. He was, this is and was and is, this warrior long before he was born, before he came to earth and born was born as a, as a child. But it talks about how he was this and is the king. This is who he is and who he, I'll say, is and was and is, talking about the future, about he is and his kingdom will have no end. Accomplished by the zeal of the Lord. Now, back to Luke chapter 3. This revelation of Christ as a deliverer. We, we oftentimes hear, oh yes, the Savior of the world around Christmas. But do we truly understand it? What is being said? He's speaking about a deliverer. Not, an, not just a child. The infant being born was the sign of who he is and his purpose, which was to bring about our deliverance. When they came to circumcise him on the eighth day in the temple, Simeon sees him and he took him in his arms in, uh, this in Luke 2, verse 28. So he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. And then he says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And not just that, so he's talking about I have seen your salvation, your deliverer. He already counted it as done because he saw the sign. This child, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And not just him, but there was a prophetess named Anna in the same day. And it says how she never left the temple serving night and day. And that's in verse Again, Luke 2, verse 37 and 38. And it says at that very moment, she came up and gave thanks, began giving thanks to God, excuse me, and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Redemption. I don't know how familiar everyone is with, with the meaning of that. But it is the action of saving or being saved, typically associated with sin, error, and evil, or of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment, clearing, or debt. This is vitally important. Again, yes, Christ is our Redeemer. He paid the price and purchased us with his blood, which he shed on the cross, defeating sin, sickness, 
disease, and death for us. They all saw this. They recognized him as a warrior, as a deliverer. And not just there, right? This is also what was prophesied about by Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. After he said that John the Baptist's name would be John, he says this. This is in Luke chapter 1. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This is in verse 67. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And he prophesied about two things. He prophesied about the Lord, Jesus, the Christ, and he prophesied about his son and his role. But he begins by, by saying, this is in Luke 1, 68 now. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies, from all the hand or from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And now he begins to prophesy about John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. He's prophesying this for two things. One, about the Lord. And it's already a done deal. He has visited us and accomplished redemption. And then he begins to prophesy about John the Baptist, who would have knowledge and understanding, but knowledge of salvation, of deliverance, which is vitally important. But it also comes up in John's testimony. If you would, would please turn to John 1. We're going to look at verses 26 through 30. Because John is talking about himself. And he says, John answered them by saying, when they're, when they're asking John, the Baptist about who he was. Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? And he's saying, no. John answered by them by saying, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where they were baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not, actually, we'll even read verse 31. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing with water. So, you see this similar um, testimony of John mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and in Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12. But what's interesting to denote here is the testimony. And that testimony was of Jesus' rank. Warriors are often found in the military. They are fighting against the enemy. 
That's where deliverers are usually found. Now, yes, the Lord raises up deliverers, and you see that throughout his word, and we are going to cover some of that. But we're going to focus primarily on the Lord as a warrior, right? So this was John's testimony of the rank of the Lord. Well, rank for anyone that's in the military, whether as a veteran or active duty, thank you for your service, especially at this time of year. It can be difficult to be away from your, your family, your loved ones, knowing that you have or in are serving a purpose, not just for them, but for the good of the entire nation. So thank you for your service. Don't lose heart. Continue. We support you. And we are thankful for all that you do and the sacrifices that you make daily to assist in bringing peace to this nation and protection. And what's often said in military, doing the Lord's work, right? And... You know, the, for those friends of mine that, that I have, that, you know, prior military and all that, it was a term that it was often used. And I never really understood that term until really studying this out. The Lord is a deliverer. Well, here's the thing. David understood that term. He understood that term in the fullness. You see it throughout the Psalms. Well, let's look at Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas, he has established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitly, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Even Jacob, the God of salvation, of deliverance. What about Psalm 69, verse 14? Deliver me from the mire, do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. Constantly, he's talking, David is talking about the Lord as a deliverer. It's incredible. Psalm 118, verse 21, I should give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation, he says. And there are, there are many others. But he understood who God is. He has always been a deliverer. But this revelation of rank denotes a military. So we're also going to continue with this. Because if we get back to, I'll say... talking about John and his the revelation of rank that's not the only time that this revelation comes out and I want to this this part is vitally important the Roman centurion Not Cornelius at the cross. But there is a Roman centurion. Bear with me a second. I'm, I lost my place. I'm trying to find that section of scripture. Well, I'll, we'll, we'll pause that for a second. Matthew 26, 53. When Jesus is betrayed in the garden. 
talking about rank and who he is. Our Lord, Jesus the Christ, is the commander of angel armies, which is why this revelation from John the Baptist is so important. In the garden at at Jesus' betrayal, he talks to Peter after he draws his sword and he says, Are you not aware that I can call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. This is an incredible, (laughs) incredible revelation that we must understand. Jesus is the commander of angel armies. And if we, you can start to understand that, well, you, we can look at the language that he used during his earthly ministry. You are my friends if you do what I command you. But let's also look at who this is being revealed to. Just like the, the prophetic word given in Isaiah chapter 9 that we read, it's those that are seeking the Lord, even seeking his face. Isn't that what David says in the Psalms? The Lord said, seek my face. And I said, thy face I will seek. Talking about the Lord. We just saw that. We read about that in multiple scriptures. Well, multiple people. Simeon and and the prophetess Anna and John the Baptist. And again, like I said, even with the Roman centurion. Let me find my place here real quick. He says this keyword. I want to find you the exact location. But he makes this interesting statement. He says, I too am a man under authority. This is a centurion. Uh, You can find it in Matthew 8, verse 9, and you can find it in Luke chapter 7. Forgive me for that delay. And in chapter 7, it's verse 8. So if you could turn there quickly. Now, this is when the Roman centurion's servant is healed. And he says, hey, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And and he says, I didn't even consider myself worthy at all. This is in verse 7. But in verse 8, he says, For I too am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And what was Jesus' response? Now when Jesus heard this, this is verse 9. He marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith that those who had been sent returned to the house and they found the slave in good health. He, this Roman centurion, came to a revelation of Christ as being a leader and in charge of, of having rank in the kingdom. He is a warrior. He always was this. He is a warrior and a king. And I know many of you are probably saying, well, well, this is just what we're talking about during his time on earth, during his earthly ministry. But no, let's point some things out here. What about during the time of Joshua and in the time of Judges? We see that this, this interesting thing I always mentioned. Actually, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, 19, excuse me. 
Now, there's this interesting thing. It isn't in chapter 18, excuse me. There were three men that were visiting Abraham and rose up and looked at Sodom. This is in Genesis 18, verse 16. And as Abraham was walking with them to send them off, says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become great and a mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He talks about how he's chosen him. But he also says this, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and I will go down now and see if they have done according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I'll know. But then there's this aspect. Abraham, in verse 23, says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he begins this literally in interceding for the people of this city. And he gets down to 10 people. 10 being divine order. A number representing divine order. And as soon as he had finished that, um, and each time, I should say this, each time the Lord's telling Abraham, I won't destroy it on account of whatever the number is. But when he gets down to 10, this is important because it's talking about divine order, which we absolutely need. But not only that, the aspect of destroying, of taking siege and, and literally destroying a city for its wickedness. We see that there. The tactician aspect. Not just there, and, I, and I'll bring that up because that's something that is said and referenced later discussing David, the king of Israel. But hold that thought for a second. Right, we're going to walk you through some other things. Uh, please turn to Exodus 13. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. It says, Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, The people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around the way of the wilderness into the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, and they set out, and they camped at Succoth. But it says in there that God will surely take care of you, and you should carry my bones when you leave here. It's a paraphrasing, of course. But it says that in verse 21, the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So let's look at that. The Lord, as a tactician, plotted the way, knowing the capability of the people, or the lack of desire or heart, the ability to defend themselves, knowing that, hey, it's likely they, these are not warriors. These people have been slaves for 400 years. They are not ready and equipped for battle. But wait, that's something that a warrior, a tactician would know. Not something that a, I'll say a, well, what the military refer, would refer to as civilians are typically aware of. That's not a thought or consideration. That if we get attacked along the way, these people might turn back and go right back into slavery because they don't know how to handle themselves. But our Lord knows it, and he considered it. Why? Because this is what who he was, is and was and is the whole time. God, King of kings, Lord of lords, and our deliverer, our savior. Let's also look at Judges, and this is important. Well, actually, even before that, during Solomon's time, or Joshua's time, excuse me, during Joshua's time, 
when they went into the land. Now the people have been prepared. They are willing to listen to the Lord and to fight their battles. And if you study that book out, you'll see there was about 60 victories in a row. Actually, they went to the Lord when they lost a victory, and they said, why did we lose? And he said, hey, don't even come to me. Don't come and complain to me. There's sin in the camp. You figure it out. That's what the Lord said, because that needed to be dealt with. And when they did, it was just victory upon victory upon victory upon victory. But then when we get to the book of Judges, we have to notice this about the Lord too. And we see this in beginning in chapter 2. It says, Now the angel of the Lord, this is verse 1, that now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to, to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you to the land from which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words, all the sons of Israel, the people, lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. But let's look at this. It keeps talking about this angel of the Lord throughout the book of Judges. The Lord continually, is, and Jesus, is expressed as the angel of the Lord throughout the entirety of the book. And after, it, it denotes him as an angel of the Lord when he speaks to the person that he has chosen to raise up as a deliverer, even though, or a judge of Israel, the Lord is still the one that brings about the deliverance. Look at Judges chapter 7. And it's talking about Gideon. And actually, we can, you can even look at the whole story of, of Gideon. How the angel of the Lord appears. And, but I bring that up because it's important to note that right after it Tibli says, the angel of the Lord, it also says then, when they're in alignment, the, the judge and the people are in alignment, denoting a relationship, it's just Lord is mentioned. Lord referring to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our Deliverer. But let's look at this in, in Judges chapter 7. It says, and this is, the Lord's preparing the people to go attack. And there's approximately 32,000 people. And it says how they're whittling it down talks about how 22 people were sent away. They were returned. And that's in verse 3. And it said 10,000 people remained. But here's the key. In verse 4 it says this. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you this one shall go with you. He shall go with you, but everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you. He shall not go. So wait, let's understand this. Gideon, who is acting as God's judge, his general, he's commanding the people and leading them from victory to victory. It's clearly not Gideon that's doing it. He is doing it following the commandments, the commands, the orders, if you will, of the Lord God, of Jesus, the Christ, our Lord and Savior, our Deliverer. He is teaching Gideon, even in the moment, this is how you test to figure out which troops are ready. Someone that is unskilled in war is unable to do it. But look at all what we had read up previously in the verses. The Lord keeps reminding, I did this. I did this. I delivered you from the Egyptians. I did these things. I kept providing your deliverance. And you see that throughout all of the scriptures. All of the scriptures in Old Testament and throughout Judges. 
It's talking about the angel of the Lord. And again, and then the people did did evil, and then they forsook the Lord, and then the angel of the Lord appears and raises up someone, a deliverer, like Moses, like Joshua. And even if we look at, at David, there are some interesting things about David, because uh, I'll say it in this way. The Lord said that David was a man after his own heart. Now, of course, yes, there was sin, but there are, there are some key things that we should remember about David. He was anointed for king. And it was said of him, and that's in, actually, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, Abigail comes to David because David has already done his part of defending the lands, the territory, protecting Nabal and his wife Abigail's home, vineyards, everything, all his stuff and his servants. But like we just read about the the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they had turned their back. Nabal would not pay, compensate. He would not honor David for the work he had already done. I think that's the most important thing. Revering him for what he had already done as a type and shadow, if you will, of our Lord and Savior. So then David goes down and he was going to wipe out all of Nabal's family, but Abigail meets him and she says that he was blessed. She says this in verse 32. Uh, excuse me. Let, me. let me back up a second. That's what David said to Abigail. Abigail says she takes the blame. But she says this. This is in verse 24. She fell at his feet, at David's feet. On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. She says to him, in verse 26, I'll, Therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging your own by your hand, let now let your enemies and those who seek evil against you be, oh, sorry, those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now, what she has said, ultimately, is when she intercedes for him. He, she, Abigail, said that he fights the Lord's battles. David is known as being a tactician. He had already proven that with defeating Saul. Uh, sorry, not Saul. He de- defeating Goliath, the giant from the Philistines. And then the songs that were sung about him as this mighty man of war, of valor, said, oh, Saul has defeated, has killed his thousands, but David, his ten thousands, showing the greatness in being a tactician and being a man of war, a warrior, and how many times he could have killed Saul. There was at least two that were mentioned that he had him, and the Lord had delivered Saul to his hands. At least that's what was said by those that were with David. And he said, no, I won't raise my hand against him. He even wept that he had taken a piece of his cloak to demonstrate and to denote, I could have killed you as a warrior, but I did not. I restrained my hand. Just showing how Saul how close he was to death. Not because David was just a great warrior, although he was, and that was demonstrated. It pales in comparison to the Lord. It denotes this. Jesus is fighting the Lord's battles. That's what the centurion noted. I too am a man under authority. What did Jesus say throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry? I only say what my father says, and I do what he does. That sounds, if for anyone that's ever served, ever been in the military, that sounds exactly like what's required of a soldier, sailor, airman, marine. To say what the commander says to say, the commander, the commandant, 
the the general, the admiral, whoever is whoever it is that's leading. Ultimately, they're taking the orders from the commander in chief. That's what they're required to say and to do. Not deviate from that plan or that course of action. Jesus is following those instructions to the letter as our pattern and example. And he is skilled. But let's also look at something else from David that's said about him. And that's this. What did David do? How did he construct his his life and his plans, being a great tactician. He always, and he says this, he bring your plans before the Lord. So David was such a great tactician. Well, wait, he is that because he brought his plans before the Lord. And he would ask him, Lord, do I just go up and, and attack these and run through this, this enemy in this battle? And the first time the Lord said, yep, go do it, and you'll have the victory. And the second time, he says, Lord, do I do the same thing? He said, no. Circle behind them, wait. In other words, the Lord was giving him instructions. Wait till you hear the sound of footsteps on the tops of the mulberry trees. And David did exactly that. He followed the Lord's plans. But also, let's note this, right? And yes, this deals with one of David's downfalls, what's referred to as David's great sin, and that's with Bathsheba. But there's a key line in that. That's in Second Samuel 11. It says, It happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. Wait, so let's recognize that for a moment. Jesus is our Savior. He's our Deliverer. But he's also our King. That is a a place of importance, and he is still fighting our battles for us. He is he has brought about our deliverance. And he will bring about our deliverance, I'll say, from the Great Tribulation. But it's important because he is our king. David again notes the deliverance in Second Samuel twenty two. Talking about the Lord is his rock and deliver, his fortress. But again, he says, my deliver, my God, in whom I take refuge. He's the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He's my savior who rescues me from violence. He calls on the Lord constantly. And that's, that also comes up in multiple places in Scripture. But there's, there's this. We talked about as king. Kings go out to battle. In John 18, let's look at verses 36 through 37. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And of course, he's questioning him about his nation. That is the nation of Israel. And he says, well, actually, let's start at 35. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now, there's some key things to, that we can pick up in there. Jesus, again, denotes he is king. And even Pilate, again, another Gentile, recognizes his kingship. It actually made him afraid. He made him fearful. We have a king fighting our battles for us. 
bringing about our deliverance. But he says, for this purpose, I'm here. This is why I'm here. It, and if we, again, going back to the Old Testament, every time the angel of the Lord came, what happened? He brought about deliverance, but he also spoke a word in season that was needed for that time. Instruction, guidance, so the people could come into alignment with it and see the deliverance of the Lord, have a, a participate in what was required to bring about their deliverance. It's no different from today. We talked about the the state of the nation and what's happening in the world and with the church and the the laws and education, the school systems, all those things. The Lord is providing the instruction, but will we listen? Will we see him for who he is? He's a warrior. It even says very plainly in Revelation 5, verse 5. Let me turn there. Talking about overcoming the world. Who is the one that overcomes? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, excuse me, that's that's First John. My apologies. I flipped one or a few too many pages. Revelations 5, 5. Talking about the, the seven seals and the book with the seven seals. One of the elders turned to me and said, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He's already done it. He's already overcome. And I don't mean this as a eschatology and pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib discussion. And if you're, you're not aware of what that is, that's okay. Let's just remain with the Lord and focus on him because he is a warrior. People that get the nickname or title, the Lion of, are not civilians. They are those that have demonstrated themselves continually in battle. For, again, for the veterans and for those that are active duty, and especially those that served in Afghanistan. You may recall in the history of Afghanistan, there was an individual known as the Lion of Panjshir. Well, he got that nickname from fighting against the Soviets in that war. And then ultimately, the Taliban, which then when he was assassinated, well... He still carried that nickname. He's still referred to as that individual, as the Lion of Panjshir. He defended that valley and that tribe and those people that were there. Well, the Lord isn't just defending the tribe of Judah. He's defending all of Israel because he is our commander. You know, we talk about in, in military and in, in strategy, there's typically a supreme commander of allied forces for a region, Europe or the Middle East or whatever the case is. Well, Jesus, our God, our Lord, our Savior, is the supreme commander for all of heaven and earth. And we have a role. A, to recognize him for who he is, to seek him with our whole heart. And, I'll say, to occupy until he comes. He's given us instruction. He's continually giving instructions, as is common for military forces. Why? So everyone can be on the same page. And also to thwart the plans, the tactics, the movements of the enemy. And I want to say this too, because um, if we go to the book of talking about Jesus as a warrior, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. This is another key thing. Paul is talking about, and this ties together with 
all the previous episodes on matters of life. He is discussing how we're to do the will of the Lord. This is in Ephesians 6, right? But then when he gets to, starting in verse 10, the armor of God, he begins by saying this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then we're exhorted, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand firm, therefore. And it continues, talking about the whole armor of God, but let's... Wait, let's look at this revelation that Paul, the apostle, also had about Jesus as a warrior. Not as an infant, not as this frail, weak individual on the cross. As a warrior, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Not the weakness of his frailty, in the strength of his might. And then he says, put on the armor. Isaiah, and in other places, talks about our God is bearing the armor of light. The armor of light to fight our battles. We're told to put that same armor on. Put on the full armor of God. And then we're also, just as a, as a commander would give, yep, this is us, this is what we're doing, here's who's in charge. Be ready, put this on. Be comfortable with it. And then he's saying, this is the enemy. This is their tactics. This is who who we're fighting against. Our God is a warrior. A weak and frail individual. Scripture even says that most wouldn't give their life. Even for a righteous man, most wouldn't give their life. But God, being a warrior being strong and full of power, strength and might, said, I know this person's guilty and this is the punishment that they deserve, but I will stand in their place and I will take the full weight of their punishment of what is rightfully, they, or what they deserve or what is rightfully owed them for what they've done. It takes a strong individual to do that. It is extremely rare. That's what our Lord and Savior did for us. That is why we celebrate Christmas. Why we celebrate his birth as Emmanuel, as God with us, as our Lord and Savior, our Deliverer. Amen. I'd like to thank you all for joining us. Encourage you to continue to stand for righteousness and for justice. And wish you all a Merry Christmas. We love you and God bless you.